Thank you, Mel. Nice to have you back. And uh, nice to be here uh, with you as well for the final message in this six-week series on relationships we've been doing called One Plus One. So this has been a series looking at a whole bunch of things around the idea of uh, romance and love and relationships. We started a number of weeks ago talking about finding the one, uh, wisely choosing someone to, to do life with and commit your life to. We looked at finding the capital O one, which is the idea that actually um, no other human being can meet the deepest needs of our souls, and that even more important than wisely choosing another human being uh, to marry and do life with is actually realizing that God is the one who, who fills uh, the deepest parts of our soul, that God is the one that we are really ultimately looking for, and he is the one who completes us. Uh, we looked at becoming the one, which is the idea of starting with the man or the woman in the mirror and recognizing that actually it's, we need to focus more on becoming the person even more than finding the right person or, or whatever. What's wrong? Oh, the light's at the back. Excellent. Just ignore them. Um, fourth one was content as one, which was about singleness and a biblical understanding that singleness is God's gift and God's plan A uh, for this juncture of life. And then one plus one, uh, which is the concept of marriage that we looked at last week and the whole idea of a, a real commitment, life commitment to one another. Today then, we're finishing off with this message, one plus one equals one. Oh, sorry, I hold on. So we're talking about a key issue today. No one's got kids in the room, have they? If you've got kids, then just feel free to whip out and take them to kids' ministry um, at this moment. Not that this is an explicit message. Um, a few years back, we, we walked our way through the Song of Songs in the Old Testament, and that was a little bit more hot and steamy than what today is going to be. But today, I do want us to look at the idea of what God teaches in his word about sex. And that's what one plus one equals one is all about. The idea comes from the passage that we saw Jesus quoting last week in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Uh, this is why a man leaves father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the idea of sexual intimacy is this real mystery that God has created, that in sexual intimacy, one plus one actually equals one, as a husband and wife become one flesh in that beautiful act. And that's what we're going to be talking about and looking at today. So if you have a Bible with you, I would love you to come with me back to 1 Corinthians one more time. And this time we're looking at the, the second half of 1 Corinthians 6 and the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 7. So we've spent a lot of time in this series in 1 Corinthians 7 in this letter that Paul wrote to a church in ancient Greece in a place called Corinth. And I want to come back to this passage again one final time. Can we turn those off? Would that be all right? Sweet. Thank you very much because that's getting quite distracting. All right, so 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, if you've got a Bible there or you're pulling up your app or whatever else, love you to jump in and have a look. What I want us to understand as you're turning that or just getting your phone um, back up and running is that what Paul is going to say to the church at Corinth is exactly what Paul will say elsewhere in the Bible about God's gift of sex and what everyone else in the Bible says as well. Scripture sings with one voice on the whole issue of sexual intimacy and sexuality and God's gift of sex. And so I want to just set the scene by reminding ourselves from a few different parts of the Bible what the biblical narrative and command actually is. So starting in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, the seventh commandment is you shall not commit adultery. So God is very clear, one of the big ten in the Old Testament, that sex outside of marriage, any sex outside of marriage, is in fact sin. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews put it this way, marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. So that means whether you're married or whether you're single, whoever we are, we are to make sure in our personal lives that we are safeguarding and honouring the institution of marriage, whether or not we are personally married at this point in our lives. Uh, one other passage, one of the other letters that Paul wrote to a church in a place called Thessalonica, it's God's will that you should be holy, that you would avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans. I actually spoke on this issue with our, our high school youth 
uh, two or three weeks ago, and it was this passage that I used to speak to them. Uh, today, we're coming to a different part of God's Word in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, and I want us to look at what Paul says here about this amazing gift that God has given to us. It almost goes without saying, though, as we kick this off, uh, just in that quick survey of what the Bible teaches on this issue, that the Bible and the society we're in are completely at odds with each other on this particular deal. The biblical teaching on sexuality and sex is utterly countercultural in the world that we are now living in. But what's important to understand is it was utterly countercultural to the world that the Corinthian Christians were living in as well. The city of Corinth was horrendously bad. And it's not just the world we live in today, and we may look at the moral standards that we're seeing in our world right now and bemoan the fact and think, man, no one's ever had to live through this. And actually, uh, the, the city of Corinth was, if not anything, actually worse than, than the, the current state of climate that we're currently in at the moment. But the biblical teaching on sexuality and sex is so fundamentally different from the world we live in that it's actually very good for us to stop at times and come back to God's word and just be reminded again, this is what God has said. This is what God teaches on this whole issue. We live in a world today, in a society today, that is highly sexualized. The media assumes uh, real liberalism when it comes to sex. Movies and TV shows and Netflix they just uh, display all kinds of sexual sin. Um, the internet has become a vehicle for trumpeting that. And I read one stat recently that internet porn gets more traffic than, than some of the biggest search engines combined. Um, we just live in this highly sexualized culture. But so did these believers that Paul was writing to. The city of Corinth in ancient Greece was dominated by a massive temple to the goddess Aphrodite. She was the goddess of love. And so everyone who grew up in Corinth, at some time or other, unless they grew up as children in the church, they would have gone to worship Aphrodite in her temple. Part of worshipping Aphrodite was to engage in sacred sex. And so there were temple prostitutes there, both male and female. And so you could go in, and part of worship was actually having sex as part of the worship of Aphrodite. Uh, Corinth was a horrendous place. There was not only temple prostitutes that you could sleep with for worship, there were also regular prostitutes that you could engage with. And for most uh, Greek men in this ancient part of the world, um, most Greek men would have a wife, would have one or more mistresses, and could also wander down to the prostitutes at various times as well. And that was normal. That was how the world worked, and that's the way everyone presumed it. And so many of the people that Paul writes this letter to came to Jesus out of that culture. So what they grew up and what was normal for them was completely different to the, the teaching that we've just read from the Scriptures. And so it's no wonder that having ministered to them and taught them and discipled them, as Paul, some years later, has to write them a letter, he's still having to correct their mindset. They haven't got this sorted yet. Discipleship is actually quite messy at times, and we don't always get it. And so as Paul's writing to them now, he's really trying to clear up some misunderstandings about sex. He's going to clear up two in particular, and they're really polar opposites, as we're going to see. And both of them, Paul is going to start out by quoting what they are saying or what some of them are saying in the church and then correct them. So first of all, in 1 Corinthians 6, he is going to correct what I'm calling the, the natural view of sex. That sex is just an appetite to be indulged. Sex is no big deal. It's casual. It's chilled. As long as you know two people are, are, are adults and consenting, there's no problem in it. It's just... You know, if you're hungry, then you grab a, a sandwich. If, you know, you, you feel like having sex, you just go find someone to have sex with. That's, it's just a natural, normal appetite, no big deal. And that's what we see uh, in this letter. So if you've got 1 Corinthians 6 open, have a look at verses 12 and 13. The NIV puts speech marks into this, which is very helpful. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I'll not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. 
The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the, but the, for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The NIV's done a helpful job here, and I, can't, I haven't actually looked at some of the other English translations, but they've actually included speech marks. There were not speech marks in ancient Greek writing. So that's been added to help us because the vast majority of commentators think that in verse 12 and verse 13, Paul is quoting what some of the Corinthians are saying. There's two quotes. Verse 12, twice, I have the right to do anything. And basically the idea behind this quote is no one's got the right to tell me how to live my life. I'm free, I can, it's my body, it's my life, I can do whatever I want. No one's got the right to dictate how I should live my life. That's the, the first kind of quote. Then the second quote in verse 13 is food for the stomach and stomach for food. In other words, look, it's just the normal physical appetite. Sex is no big deal, it's just this physical urge that you indulge just like hunger. It's not a big deal, it's just a physical act. And so what Paul does is he quotes these ideas that some in the Corinthian church are still proclaiming even though they've come to Jesus because they're not fully matured yet. And so this is what, so he's quoting them and now what he's going to do in the rest of this section of chapter 6 is he's going to critique this way of thinking. Now this way of thinking is very common. This week um, I was scrolling through my phone as I often do, having a coffee in the morning. I grab either the Herald or Stuff, which are both on my phone, and I start just kind of seeing what's in the news that morning. And I was flicking through stuff on my phone, stuff.co.nz, and a headline came up. One of the headlines on there was something about sex. And normally I generally don't click on those articles and read them, but because I was speaking this weekend, I did. And what I found is this article was one of those advice columns to a person who, a woman who uses the pseudonym Petra, so we don't know her name, but people can write to Petra at stuff.toco.nz. And so this young woman wrote to Petra and said, I'm sleeping with my boyfriend and the sex is great, but actually the rest of the relationship, we really have nothing in common and I'm not sure it's going anywhere, what should I do? And Petra, in all of her wisdom, wrote this, a sexual relationship between two consenting adults that is positive for both parties and is not hurting anyone else is never a bad idea. And I thought, good night. If anything, one line can personify the, basically the attitude of the world around us, it's Petra's. Oh, you know what? Doesn't matter if you've got nothing in common. Doesn't matter if you really have no conversation before or afterwards. Doesn't matter if you don't think it's going anywhere. If you feel like sex and he feels like sex and... Sweet. It's a great thing. Go for it. That, 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 that was Petra's advice to this young woman. But Paul disagrees. And that's what he's going to do in this passage. He's, he's arguing against this. And, and Petra could have lived in first century Corinth and written exactly that. And Paul here is quoting this kind of idea. Ah, it's just an appetite. I can do whatever I like with my body. And he's going to respond and say, no. In fact, if you've got your Bible open, let your eyes go down to verse 18. Look at what he says in response. This is the command in this passage. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Down to the end of verse 20. Honor God with your bodies. That's the negative and the positive in this passage. Paul responds to this idea uh, from, the, from the Corinthian church, this worldly, this natural view that sex is just some appetite to be indulged, and he says, wrong. Flee from this. He'd written to the Thessalonians earlier, avoid sexual immorality. Now he writes here to the Corinthians, where it's even tougher, flee. And I can't help wondering whether he's got in mind here the story of Joseph in the Old Testament book of Genesis, who was a slave in a household in Egypt, and the wife of his master, Potiphar, was trying to uh, get him to sleep with her, and she kept asking day after day after day, the narrative says, until one day she grabbed him when Potiphar was out of the house and said, come to bed with me, and Joseph slipped out of the cloak that she'd grabbed and fled out of the house. And I can't help wondering whether that's the story in the back of Paul's minds as he writes verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Do everything you can to avoid buying into this rubbish idea. We have to get away from this concept. Flee the wrong use of sex. Now, here's the question. 
Why? Or maybe, why not? Because just to say, flee this, don't buy into this line, it's wrong, get out of there, is not enough. And so what Paul does actually in this section is he spends much more time, he just gives the basic command, flee, honor God with your bodies. But he spends most of this passage explaining why. And there's four key reasons that I want us to walk through. The first key reason, or why not, is that sex is not casual. It is powerful. Sex is not just some casual thing. Sex is an immensely powerful gift from God that when misused can actually master us. Let's come back to verse 12 again where he did those quotes, or started the quotes. Of the right to do anything you say, but Paul says, but not everything is beneficial. And I have the right to do everything you say, but Paul says, but I will not be mastered by anything. In other words, Paul says, the first thing we need to understand, the reason we should flee sexual immorality is because this gift that is from God is a powerful gift. Sex is not just some casual thing you do without consequence. This is so powerful that if misused and misappropriated, it can actually take control and master you. A Korean-American pastor by the name of Stephen Um writes these words, Sex is a good thing, a beautiful thing, but take notice, it's a powerful thing too. That's what Paul says. Sex has the potency not only to please, but also to control. Anyone who's wrestled with sexual addiction can testify just how powerful it is. Another uh, commentator, uh, Professor Vang, writes, Marriage is to sex what a fireplace is to a fire. It's the only context in which the positive effects of God's gift may be enjoyed without lives being consumed or destroyed. But there's a number of writers that I've read preparing for this particular message that have used the fire analogy and said sex is as powerful as fire. You place a fire, you light a fire within the confines of a fireplace that keeps it controlled and allows it to stay there. It's beautiful. A fire, which I mean, we have a, a lovely fire in our home, and in the middle of winter we can light the fire and it gives warmth and light. It's just a, a lovely thing. But you take that same powerful uh, thing of fire, you take that outside of that, it can just go wild. See, what Vang is saying is fire in the right context is a beautiful thing. You know, light the fire, put your feet up, have a nice cuppa. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's warm. It's romantic. But you take fire out of the context of a fireplace. This is one of the photos of the California fire that's just happened recently and killed more than 50 people. It's the same thing. But this powerful gift of God when let out of the confines for which it's intended, can ravage and destroy people's lives. And that's what Paul is saying. Sex is a powerful thing. It is not casual. Secondly, he says, sex isn't just personal, but deeply profound. It is profound because it unites us to another person. We're going to skip verses 13 to 15 for now. I'm going to come back to those, but come down to verse 16 if you've got this in front of you. Paul says, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh, and whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Don't miss verse 16. Paul's just quoted this foundational verse of Genesis 2 that Jesus quoted last week, that we just put up on the, on the screen at the beginning of this message. For this reason, a man will leave father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Which in that context of, of Genesis 2 is talking about the marriage relationship and sexual intimacy between a husband and wife. But notice what Paul has just said. He's not quoting that about a husband and wife. He's quoting that about a guy going down to the red light district in Corinth and paying for a prostitute services. And he's saying... He who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body. In other words, this sex act, this intimate act between two people is a fusing. It is a profound coming together of two human beings. 
and outside of marriage, you are bonding with another person. You are uniting your life with theirs. And that's incredible. In fact, what staggered me as I read this article on stuff.co.nz this week, after hearing Petra, whoever she is, talk about just, yeah, go for it, whatever, interestingly enough, I got further down the article, and here's what Petra said. However, even the most clearly defined buddy sex, when continued for long enough, does tend to lead to at least one person developing feelings for the other. Over time, sex breeds attachment. Post-sex, our brains flood with oxytocin, which makes us feel connected to the person lying next to us. Yes, well done, Petra. See, God has created his gift of sexual intimacy to glue us together. So once a husband and wife have glued their lives together in a commitment of marriage, vowed their lives to each other as we saw last week in a promise of future love, God's idea is that then, as a husband and wife regularly enjoy sexual intimacy, it is re-gluing, it is applying glue again and again to that relationship. The problem is, you go down to visit a prostitute, you sleep with your boyfriend and girlfriend, you have an affair with someone else, you're now gluing your life to someone you haven't already glued to. And when that relationship parts, as it almost always does, the glue that's bound two souls and bodies together now rips those souls and bodies as it comes apart. That is why God has said that the gift of sex is for within marriage only. Because it's been designed by him to release oxytocin and to create the sense of attachment and to apply more glue to a relationship that's already glued in the covenant of marriage. So I love this statement uh, from a pastor named Daniel Doriani. Outside of marriage, he says, sexual intimacy is intrinsically deceptive. It's a life-uniting act without a life-uniting intent. That is utterly profound. Sex outside of marriage is a life-uniting act without a life-uniting intent. But the way that God designed this gift is that you, you make the life-uniting act permanent. In a marriage ceremony, you vow your life to each other. And then this life-uniting act of sexual intimacy just continues to apply the glue to the relationship that's already been glued. See, that's what Genesis 2.24 is talking about. I actually get uh, to teach this verse at the Weekend to Remember conference for family life. And I do it once or twice a year. And what I do with this verse is I talk about three building blocks for marriage. The first building block is that first line, a man leaves his father and mother. And I call that first building block the building block of priority. And the idea is that, that in that ancient culture, uh, the most important fundamental relationship in a person's life was with their mum and dad until marriage. So the idea behind that first line is that when you marry, you are virtually severing, not to reject parents, but you are saying, my parents are no longer the priority number one relationship in my life. I am now committing that this person who I am giving my life to in marriage will now be the priority. And that doesn't only apply then to mum and dad. But what it's saying is that, that marriage is to be the priority relationship, that my spouse is to be more important than my career, that my spouse is to be more important than my sports or my leisure, that my spouse is to be more important than making money, my spouse is to be more important than any kids who may come along later on. That marriage is the priority. That's the first building block. Then the second building block of marriage is in the next line. And the man is united to his wife, which essentially in the original Hebrew language actually means to be glued. It means to be stuck together. It's the, it's the building block of permanence. So you have priority and you have permanence. 
where you commit your life to each other, as we saw last week, this, this promise of future love. You vow your life to the other person. And so you have the building block of priority and the building block of permanence. And then on top of those two comes the third building block of passion. They shall become one flesh. And the way that God intended this gift of sexuality to work was that you only engage in the third building block of passion when you have made the priority and the permanence commitment to each other. You choose each other over everyone else and you commit your lives to each other in sacred vows. And then comes passion. And in fact, every married person would be able to tell you that when it doesn't feel like marriage is a priority or when it doesn't feel like we're really as committed to each other as we once were, the passion dies. Because God designed passion to be built on priority and permanence. But when we take sex outside of marriage, when we take this gift that God has given and take it elsewhere where there is no priority and there is no permanence, it might be exciting for a time. It may release oxytocin into our brain, but it's far and away wrong in terms of what God has said. And we're actually hurting ourselves in the process because this is not casual. This is powerful and it is profound. Third reason then that Paul gives is that sex is not carefree but significant. It is not carefree. It is significant. This is verse 18. This is the verse I read just before the, the, the key command, flee from sexual immorality. But look at what Paul says next. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. That verse has always troubled me. I've never quite understood what Paul was saying. There are some commentators who say what Paul is saying is that sexual sin is a whole different category to everything else. Like there's sin, and then there's sexual sin. Like that's as, whoo, this is the hum, this is the biggie. But I don't think that's what Paul is saying at all. I mean, there are actually different levels of sin. There are some sins that are worse than others, although all sin is an affront to God. But the Bible doesn't actually stress that sexual sin is worse. In fact, often in the New Testament, when the writers like Paul will talk about sins, they will often mix sexual sin in with other things like gossip or greed. And they get all mixed in with each other as though actually this is not a separate category of sin. There are other commentators who try and say, well, sexual sin is different that, and because it involves our body. It's just not our our, our will deciding to deliberately sin. It's not just our heart turning away from God towards an idol. It involves our bodies. But, but that doesn't work either because there's lots of other sin that involves our bodies. You know, getting drunk, which is clearly a sin in the Bible. Well, that involves our bodies because it's our bodies getting drunk. It's not just our mind or our heart. You know, there are other sins. You know, stealing from someone. You know, I shoplifted when I was in primary school. You know, it was my body involved in that, not just me. You know, I've talked about it before. It's okay. God's forgiven me. I think what Paul is saying in verse 18 is that sexual sin is profoundly significant because it is a giving away of the totality of ourselves, body, soul, heart, and mind. So Stephen Um, again, describes it this way helpfully. Paul is not saying there's nothing else that involves your physical body. He's saying there's nothing else that involves us, all of us, including our bodies, everything we are. There's nothing that does that quite like sex does. With sex, we're all in. With sex, we give ourselves, all of ourselves, away. I think he's onto something. I think that's what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying sexual sin is like a whole level worse than anything else. What he's saying is there's something deeply significant in this particular type of sin. Because we are giving ourselves, all of ourselves away in a way that no other sin really quite gets to that level. 
But what that means is that when we sin sexually and give ourselves away, we may well deeply scar ourselves with this area of sin almost more than anything else. It's interesting that research is starting to bring that out. I read some stuff um, in these last few weeks uh, from a lady named Donna Freitas. She's a research professor at Notre Dame University in America. She's completed a 10-year nationwide study across America into the sexual habits of university students across the states at a number of college campuses. And this is what her research has borne out. 41% of young people said hooking up, just casually having sex, 41% say hooking up made them feel, quote, profoundly unhappy, disrespected, sad, or abused, end quote. The highest praise the other 59% could muster was fine. She found no student who claimed that hooking up was awesome or amazing, just fine. That's incredible. In the cold light of day, when people have had a chance to reflect on what it is they are doing, over a 10-year research project, this professor found that 100% of students at best say it was fine. But that's all. Ben Stewart, who's one of the authors that I've particularly enjoyed in this series, um, he then goes on and writes this about another study, the common testimony of sexually experienced university college-aged women is a narrative of regret. 2005 study found that young women who had multiple sex partners were 11 times more likely than virgins to report elevated depressive symptoms. Just let that soak in for a minute. Especially if you're a young woman or the parent of a young woman. Young women who had multiple sex partners were 11 times more likely than virgins. They have symptoms of depression. The reason is what Paul is saying in verse 18. We give ourselves away. We unite our heart our life, our body, our soul, and glue to someone else. And then we just casually walk off and we rip our soul away and we scar ourselves. Paul says that's why we flee sexual immorality. Because it's not casual, it's powerful. And it's not just this personal thing, it's this profound uniting with someone else. And it isn't carefree, it is significant and it is deep. And all of those three reasons apply to everyone on the planet, whether they're a follower of Jesus or not. But then the last reason he gives is uniquely aimed at those who are followers of Jesus. Because Paul says sex isn't just physical. But if you're a follower of Jesus, if you have a relationship with God and you've been forgiven and adopted as a son or daughter of the living God, then sex isn't just physical, it is spiritual. Come back now with me to verse 13. This is amazing. Again, their quote, food for the stomach and stomach for food and God will destroy them both. The body, though, Paul says, was not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. When he uses Lord in this letter, he's talking about Jesus. By his power, God raised the Lord. He raised Jesus from the dead and he'll raise us also. In other words, what we do with our bodies is significant. It's not just an issue of my soul. You know, I really love Jesus and, I've got to, and it doesn't matter what I do with my body. Paul says, no, 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 no. What we do with our bodies is, is, is that's us and that's significant. He's going to raise our bodies from the dead. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? And a few chapters over in this letter, he is going to use this beautiful analogy that the church Local church, universal church, both elements. The church is the body of Christ. So the church is like a human body, and Christ is the head that controls everything, and each of us are a part of the body. We're a hand or an eye or a spleen, 
And each of us has a role to play. Paul's picking up that analogy now. He's introducing it early. And what he's saying is that means you are part of the body of Jesus. So Jesus has now physically gone to heaven and the church is now his body. But he says to the people in Corinth, gentlemen of Corinth, followers of Jesus, if you go down to the harbor and have sex with a prostitute, you're part of the body of Jesus. So you in that act are uniting Jesus and that prostitute. You're inviting Jesus into that sex act. And you thought it was just a prostitute. Jump over to verse 19. He does it again. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. If you're a follower of Jesus, if this is another analogy he uses, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. God, the Spirit, lives in you if you're a follower of Jesus. But that means if you go and have sex, you're taking the Holy Spirit along. So if you're sitting in the back seat of the car, making out with your girlfriend and touching parts of her body that you have no reason to be touching at this point, the Holy Spirit is part of that. It's not just you and her. It's you and her and the Spirit of the living God. You're choosing to sleep with your fiancé even though you haven't yet made those vows of marriage. It's not just you and and your fiancé in bed. It's you and your fiancé and the Spirit of God in bed. That just messes the whole scene up, doesn't it? You're having an affair with a colleague at work. It's not just you and your colleague. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's you and your colleague and the living God in that hotel room. What Paul is saying is the fourth reason we flee from sexual immorality is that if we are followers of Jesus, we are part of the body of Christ. We take Jesus with us. And we are temples of the Spirit of God. We take the Holy Spirit with us. Is that where you want to take your God? Is that what you want to do with your Savior? Is that where you want to go? With his spirit. That's a really freaky reason, isn't it? Paul says, this gift of sex is powerful. It is profound. It is significant. It is spiritual. So flee the wrong use of sex. However, before we get the wrong idea, that therefore sex is bad and, and naughty and should never be part of this. As I said to, um, to the young people that I, when I spoke to Alter a few weeks ago, it's not that God is anti-sex. God is pro-sex. It's not that God has a lower view of sex than the world does. God has a higher view of sex than the world does. He, he created us as sexual beings. He created hormones. He created our sex organs. He designed this. It's not like God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden naked and then went away and came back and said, what are you doing? Because he invented this. He planned this and he loves this gift. And it's not that God says, no, flee, because he's anti-sex. He is pro this gift. And holds it much more highly than anyone else does in the world around us. And that's important because the second view then Paul very quickly corrects in the first few verses of chapter 7 is the other view, the extreme view, the spiritual view, that sex is a sin to be scorned. So he's going from one extreme where the world sits, which is, oh, it's just an appetite to be indulged. And he says, don't you believe it, flee from sexual immorality. But now what he's doing is he's going the other end. Because it seemed as though there was a camp in the church at Corinth that were arguing, oh, no, 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 that's totally wrong. Sex is really bad. Like, there's no way you should. That's just icky. So let's just not even go there. In fact, if you were really spiritual, the most deeply spiritual among us would never, ever go there. Because that's just horrendously bad. 
So you have a look at verse 7, verse 1. Again, the NIV very helpfully puts some speech marks in place here. Now, for the matters you wrote about, Paul says, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, end quote. So now he's going to this, arguing against another camp, the, the spiritual camp, who are saying, oh, look, it's, you just don't even go there. It's just good for, for a man not to touch a woman. And doesn't mean brush up against them in the corridor. It means to, to have sex. And this, sadly, has been the view at different times from different parts of the church. For example, the first modern pope, as we understand the role of pope in the 6th century, Pope Gregory I, said conjugal union, which means sex if you're married, you know, great language, cannot take place without carnal pleasure. In other words, it's always good fun. But if it's fun, it cannot under any circumstance be without blame. So this is the first real pope, in the sense that we understand it, who said that marital sex is always sinful. And it's no wonder that the Catholic Church, really from about this time forward, propagated the idea that marriage is okay for the average Christian. But if you're like at the top level of spirituality, a priest or a nun or a monk, it's a no-no. But it's not only the Catholic Church that has done this. This has become part of various sections of the church through history. A few years ago, we, we did this series on the Song of Songs, and I came across this brilliant quote, and I've had to pull this woman out again. So that 200 years ago, Mrs. Ruth Smithers, and here's what she wrote. Some young women actually anticipate the wedding night ordeal with curiosity and even pleasure. Beware such an attitude, you young women. One cardinal rule should never be forgotten, she says. Give little, give seldom, and above all, give grudgingly. <laughs> oh my goodness, who feels sorry for Mr. Smithers, eh? Man alive. Otherwise, look at what she says. Otherwise, what could have been a proper marriage could become an orgy of sexual lust. Good night. What Paul is about to say is that that is just as unbiblical and sinful as Petra's comment in stuff.co.nz. Ruth Smithers is no closer to the heart of God than Petra on this issue of sex. This is wrong. Have a look at verses 2 to 5. Look at what Paul now says. Verse 2. But since sexual immorality is occurring... Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. In other words, one of the reasons to get married is so that you don't engage in sexual immorality because God has designed this gift within the marriage relationship. Now look at verses 3 and following. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. In other words, if you are married, you have a duty. That's what, that's what Paul's saying to meet the needs of your spouse in love. Look at verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but she yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have um, authority over his own body, but he yields it to his wife. Now, let's be careful. That does not mean that the person who would like sex can demand sex of their spouse. It means that each spouse, both husband and wife in marriage, takes a selfless view of this, and seeks to meet the needs of their spouse in love. So it's not that you can demand because, you know, well, hold on, you know, Paul said that, that your body's mine. No, it's that each spouse in marriage is so committed to meeting all of the needs of the one they love. They yield their body to the other in a beautiful dance of love. Verse 5, look at this. Do not deprive each other. Man, key command of the Bible. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this is a concession, not a command. In other words, what Paul is saying is, have sex regularly and joyfully if you're married. And if you have to, because you want to fast and pray, then just do that for a really short time 
and then go back to regular lovemaking. But I only say that as a concession so you don't have to fast and pray. You can pray and keep having sex. That's completely fine as far as Paul's concerned. See what he's doing? He's holding up sex as a beautiful gift. And as he opposes one extreme, this, this view that says sex is just an appetite, and says, no, 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 flee from a wrong view of sex, he takes on this spiritual view that says sex is to be scorned, and he says, no, 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 embrace the right view of sex. Enjoy what God has given. One writer, Danny Aiken, says sex as God designed it is good, exciting, intoxicating, powerful, living, and unifying. The one flesh relationship is the most intense physical intimacy and the deepest spiritual unity possible between a husband and a wife. He's saying, if you are married, light the fire in the fireplace of your marriage and stoke it and enjoy it and embrace it. God is not anti this. God is very, very for this gift in marriage. See, this is the big idea. Sex is a wonderful gift from God. But it's a wedding present, not a birthday gift. Sex is a wedding present, not a birthday gift. The Bible teaches both a positive and a negative view of sex. Sex is a wonderful gift from God. That's why you'll read in Proverbs 5, Writing to a young man, may your fountain be blessed, may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a, do a loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always, may you ever be intoxicated with her love. It's a gift from God. But then in the very next verses, why my son be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? For your ways are in full view of Yahweh and examines all your paths. See, it's a wonderful gift from God but it's a wedding present. It's not a birthday gift. Just because you're 16 or 18, or as a stupid movie a few years ago, you're a 40-year-old virgin, so you might as well crack the gift. No. This gift of God that he has given, his gift of sex, is not a birthday gift. It's a wedding present. It's a gift that he has given to you to open only with the person you have vowed your life to. And not to be opened before you have committed your lives to each other, but only committed on that night. And that is when you open the gift. Just married, Mr. and Mrs. That's when this gift, God is to be opened and enjoyed and embraced with all of the beauty that he's given. So as we finish today and finish this series, let me just very quickly speak to a few of us about what it means to honour this gift. I want to speak to a number of groups of us today. Number one, I want to speak to you if you are single. If you are single today, and that may mean you're a teenager, that may mean you are divorced that may mean you are single and looking, or you might be single and happy, or you might be single and dating. If you are single, pursue sexual purity. Flee from sexual immorality. Guard this gift and do not open it until it is ready. And this is actually for your own good. One writer, David Gudgel, says sexual happiness is connected to whether or not a couple saves sex for marriage. In other words, you want great sex when you're married? then don't have sex before you get married. Those who wait are up to 47% more likely to enjoy it within marriage. The Family Research Council found 72% of those couples who waited report higher sexual satisfaction within their marriage. If you're single, just wait. It's worth the self-control. And by the way, as I spoke to the older youth a few weeks ago, that doesn't only mean sexual purity, that means mental purity as well. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, you've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, he said, if anyone looks at a woman lustfully, he's already committed adultery within her, in her heart. In an age of internet porn, where that is more freely available than ever, to pursue sexual purity 
is not only to have safeguards around your sex life, it is to have safeguards around your mind and your eyes. One writer, I'm doing a lot more reading around this at the moment. Tim Challies writes, porn works its way into your heart in seed form and seeks to grow as large as possible and take over as much of you as it can. And in the process, it crowds out your ability to relate closely to others. Studies are now finding that neural pathways in the brain are being rerouted by people who use porn regularly. It is actually altering the brain patterns and the brain workings of porn addicts to the point where it's causing sexual dysfunction in marriage. It's a horrendous thing. And so this actually applies to all of us. Because I'll tell you now, in a room of this size, there are a lot of people playing around with porn. And what was once an issue for men, the books I'm now reading are increasingly saying this is young women almost just as much now as young men. So this is all of us. Pursuing sexual purity is not now just what we do with our sex organs, but it's what we do with our brains, and it's what we do with our eyes. So if you're single, especially, hear me. Pursue sexual purity. Secondly, if you are dating, I want to say something to you. Because it can be very tempting to open the box prematurely. So can I urge you, have firm guidelines in place. Craig Rochelle of Life Church in the US writes, here are some so practical, they're pure genius ways to keep out of trouble. Here's his little list. Keep four feet on the floor, keep your bed, your bed, keep everything buttoned and zipped and keep your tongue in your own mouth. <laughs> now, whether you subscribe fully to his list or not is actually not the issue. Here's my question. If you are dating, what's your list? And have you discussed it? If you are dating today, I would urge you at the very beginning of a dating relationship to talk about what your physical boundaries are as a couple. So have them and talk about them and hold each other accountable and invite someone else to hold you accountable as well. I love what my mate Timon says in Aussie. The Bible's standard for purity is not to avoid crossing the line. It's not about even getting close. When Rochelle and I were dating, she lived in Christchurch. I lived in Wellington for a year. We were flying to spend weekends with each other, staying in each other's homes because we were both still living at home with our parents at that point. And we realized that we needed boundaries around that because we were living in the same home on weekends, on the same house on weekends. We could seriously get into trouble really quick. So one of our boundary rules was we don't go into each other's bedrooms. When I'm in Christchurch staying at Roland Elaine's place, I never went into her bedroom. When she was in, in Wellington, staying at my parents' home, she never came into my bedroom. For us, that was just a, can we just not go there? Not even keeping your bed, your bed, Craig Rochelle, we just went, we're not even walking into the room. And it's not because, oh no, I won't say, I was going to, I was going to say, it's not because I, you know, she couldn't keep her hands off me. I said it. <laughs> it's actually quite the opposite. I didn't trust myself to get my hands off her. Passion has a way of sneaking up on you. Man, if, and if you haven't dated yet or you're dating now, would you just, just listen? You may have the best intentions in the world. But man, those intentions can come crumbling down very fast. If you don't have some boundaries and guidelines that you've discussed and you're both clear on and you're both choosing to stick to because you want to open that gift one day with the right person and you may not even be dating that person right now. But even if you are, you want to open that gift at the time God intended. So if you're dating, have guidelines. If you're living together, you're sitting here in this audience, you're watching this online somewhere, if you're living together right now, or maybe you don't share the same address, but you're dating and you're sleeping together, can I urge you to stop, to separate, to set a date, and get married? It's the best thing you could do. I love the fact a couple of years ago in our church, when Hara 
and Dulcia Manahira moved to, back to Auckland. They were addicted to Pete. He came to church, sat down there, recommitted his life to Jesus. A few weeks later, Dulcia gave her heart to Christ for the first time. And then Hara got incredibly convicted on this issue and said to Dolphs, we're not sleeping together anymore. And so for about a four-month period until I got to marry them on Queen's birthday weekend that year, they did not have sex, even though they'd been living together for more than a decade. Because as, as new followers of Jesus, they said, no, this is wrong, and even though we've been doing this, we're stopping, and they drew a line in the sand, and they waited four months until they'd made that commitment to each other. You know what they did? They stuffed these back in the box, and they shut the lid, and they said, we're recommitting to this. Until that weekend, they got to open the box again. Ben Stewart, only one in five cohabiting relationships end in marriage. I don't care if everyone else is doing it. Because 80% of those relationships won't even make it to marriage. And the 20% that do have a significantly increased likelihood of divorce. It's actually not worth it. And don't buy the line that you have to see if you're sexually compatible. Oh, please. Boy, girl, God, sweet. You're sexually compatible. I love the way Andy Stanley puts it. You're sexually compatible with far more people than you're relationally compatible with. So actually put the sex to the side and figure out whether or not you're relationally compatible. And then open the box later on. Fourth one. Marry, enjoy. That was pretty easy, wasn't it? Enjoy God's gift. Joyfully, enjoy God's gift. Regularly, enjoy God's gift with all of the joy and guilt-free as he intended. Two of my favorite authors on the subject are these two women, Linda Dillow and Lorraine Pintus, who write, God desires that a husband and wife be naked and unashamed, glorying in the giving and receiving of exquisite pleasure and rejoicing in the intimate oneness that sex brings. He longs to show you that his gift can be erotic and fulfilling and free and beautiful. That's a Christian biblical view of sex within marriage. Final two comments. You're struggling today. If you look at this, and you're a couple that is dating or engaged, and you're either flirting with the line or you've crossed it, can I encourage you, close the box up and make yourself accountable to other people? If you're struggling with this gift and you're married, it's probably a barometer about the priority and permanence building blocks being not so strong in your marriage. So go get help. Go see a counsellor. We talked about that last week. You're struggling with porn, and I've talked to a number of people in our church who are, and there's probably many more who I haven't talked to yet. Get some help. Talk to people. You will never defeat porn alone. That's one of the conclusions I'm coming to. So have the courage to open up and find some people you can trust and begin a journey in community to attack this problem. So if you're struggling, find some trusted help. And then finally... I want to speak to those of you who feel guilty right now. Because there's a lot of people in this room that have messed around with the gift. Either you opened it prematurely or you did other things you regret. And whether that's far in your past or whether that's really recent, sometimes a talk like this brings up a lot of those feelings. And I want to end today by just reminding you of the wonder of God's grace. Because if you are a believer in Jesus, when you gave your life to him, he forgave every mistake. He paid for every sin. He restored you and cleansed you and welcomed you. So as we finish today, I'm going to get Robin and the band to come up. And they're going to lead us in worship. And we have communion up the front.
And for those of you in the back half of the hall, we have communion behind you as well. And I want to take a bit of time as we finish here to not celebrate this gift that God has given so much, but to celebrate the greatest gift of all, which is his forgiveness and grace. And this is especially for you if you carry any sense of guilt or shame or regret. Paul wrote in Colossians 2, when we were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Can I read that line again? He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us. He condemned it, and he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So as we finish today, I don't want to actually focus on this. In fact, I'm going to get rid of it. I want us to focus on the gift of grace and the gift of forgiveness. I want to focus on this gift. And so I want to invite you to stand. And as we praise him, as we worship him, in your own time, I want to invite you to come to the front or if you're at the back half, head to the back. Take bread and wine and celebrate that no matter what we have done, no matter how many mistakes we have made, no matter how much we have failed, we find forgiveness and hope and new life and restoration in Jesus Christ.